Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Today Thanks. we're going to start a sermon series titled, Yes, He Did. And this is, this is going to be the first half of four different declarative statements. And so, yes, he did. Today, I want to talk to you about, yes, he did enter as king. Friday, good Friday, I would encourage you to come to that. I'm going to teach a lesson titled, or more of a devotional, titled, Yes, He Did Atone for Us. Easter Sunday, yes, he was resurrected. And then the Sunday after Easter, which we're going to continue our Easter series beyond Easter with a yes, he did send his Holy Spirit to us. And, man, I want you guys to be encouraged. I, they're declarative statements on purpose because there's no lie in them. They are absolutely true. Yes, he did. If the word declares that he did it, let me tell you something. He did it. There's no question. There's no wondering. There's no have to ask yourself, are you sure? I will tell you that it is absolutely sure. You can prove it both internally and externally from Scripture. That Scripture is exactly what it says it is. That it's infallible and unchangeable. That it is canonized and it is perfect in every way, suitable for everything that you need. Amen? That's why we should read it. My look, my Sunday read your Bible plug. <laughs> but today I want to talk to you about enter as king. Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what we know as Palm Sunday. It's a tradition of the church, really. But for reasons I hope to show you today, we've we've determined to label it Palm Sunday. It was the beginning of the week. Jesus' last week on earth. It's during this last week that we see Jesus not just entering, but we see him flipping tables. We see his final teachings. We see him wash his disciples' feet, show us what real service looks like. It's during this last week that he's arrested, that he's beaten that he's tried unjustly. It's in this weekend that he was crucified, this week that he was crucified and nailed to a cross so that we might have the hope of eternal life. But it's also the beginning of the week where our hope was most assured in his resurrection proving that all the work that he did, everything he came to accomplish was in fact accomplished. It's the proof of our hope. But today I want to talk to you about the triumphant, triumphal entry, his announcement that I am king. Amen? And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that out of chapter 21 of Matthew, specifically but before I do, well, let me read verse 1. It says, When they had approached Jerusalem 
and come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent his two disciples, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. I'm going to stop right there to talk to you for a moment out of Luke. 1941 says this, when he approached, which is the beginning of the triumphant entry introduction in Luke, it says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. We will, it'd be very easy to get past this, but let me tell you, when he sends them away from the colt, he is at the Mount of Olives. This is when this is happening. And I've been to the Mount of Olives. I've seen it. And if you ever get a chance to go, I encourage you to go. This is the geography of the Mount of Olives. It's, it's, a, it's a mount, obviously. That's why it's called Mount of Olives. But between the Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem is the Kidron Valley. And it's, it's a very high mount, very low valley. And across the other side of this valley is the city of Jerusalem. Now, the city of Jerusalem, if you've been there, you know it sits just a little bit lower than the Mount of Olives. You can look down into the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which means that Jesus would have been looking. And I want you to picture this. Jesus would have been looking into the city, the temple specifically from where he was, and he would have seen the people in the temple making a wreck of the house of worship. It's the reason why he immediately went into the city and did what? He went and cleansed the temple. He started flipping tables. So Jesus sees mankind. He sees the temple of God where the presence of his Holy Father resides with men on earth. And he sees their brokenness. He sees their sin. He sees their rebellion. He sees their preference of self over service their own glory over God's glory. And he weeps. But I don't think he weeps because he's mad. Y'all ever been so mad that you weep? I don't think he weeps because he's mad. I think he weeps because he's compassionate. Because he knows better than anyone else on earth the horrible state of mankind. Because he looks at our humanity and says, it is broken. And he's broken by it. Can y'all imagine serving a king? Even an earthly king that loves his people enough to weep over them. But the creator God of the universe stopped on the Mount of Olives, overlooked the city, saw the brokenness of man, and wept. I want you to understand, I bring this up because I want you to understand his heart moving into the city. The reason why he went into the city in the first place, because mankind was broken, had been broken from the very beginning of time when Adam and Eve first sinned. He promised to send a Savior to them. He promised to send a Messiah to them. And Jesus is that Messiah. He is there to heal the wounds of mankind. Sadly, of mankind, specifically Israel, they would never acknowledge him during his lifetime, and he wept. We should cause us to weep. He's that good. Uh, 
I, I kind of want to slip out of my preaching mode and just tell you, we, we should weep too for the brokenness of man, for the brokenness of our neighbor. Be the example that Jesus set and love them enough to cry over them. But more specifically, love them enough to ride into their city and tell them about him. Amen. And so I want to talk to you today about he entered as king with that in mind, with this heart that Jesus had as the precursor to everything that he's about to do. In verse 4 through 11, it reads like this. This took, pl- this took place, that is, that he took a colt. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Amen. I want to talk to you about this king. Just for a few moments. He is the king of prophecy. And what I hope to do is build your faith to encourage you, which means to instill courage upon you that you are serving the right proper king. It says this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Matter of fact, everything Jesus did was for the purpose of fulfilling all that had been said about him. In Luke 24, 24, we read, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things, everybody say all things, which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. I want to talk about the king of prophecy for a few moments. This text that I read you in verse 5, and I'll get to that in just a few moments. Verse 5 is a prophecy about Jesus. Did you know that Matthew, just in the gospel of Matthew, there are 68 prophecies that he used to declare who the Messiah was. When Matthew wrote the book of Matthew, wrote the gospel, inspired to write the gospel. He wrote it primarily to the Jews. So he needed to show them that according to what you know, this is the Messiah. And so he used 68 prophecies. But did you know there's 353 up to 365, depends on who you listen to, prophecies about Jesus throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Let me explain what that means. 
the probability that one person fulfilled all 353 of the prophecies throughout the Old Testament is 10 to the 47th power. That's 10 with 47 zeros behind it. Now, we can't comprehend that number. That number's too big for us. We can't really even comprehend what a million is. So let me try to help you. Somebody did the math, and I appreciate that because I'm not sure how I'd even start. But they figured if you take a silver dollar, silver dollar about this big, and you decided to make a ball of silver dollars by mashing them together and placed it in the center of the sun. By the time you stacked 14 or 10 to the 47th powers worth of half dollars, that circle would grow beyond the perimeter of the sun, out past the earth, and into the orbit of Neptune. That's how many silver dollars you'd have. That's a lot of probability that Jesus is who he says he is. But that's not the statistical probability. That's just how many neat quarters there are, half dollars there need to be to establish that there, that there is a statistical probability. The statistical probability lies in the fact that you take a ball that big full of half dollars or silver dollars, get a blind man, put him on that ball, and the probability that he picks up one that you painted red the first time, that's the statistical probability that Jesus was anything other than the Messiah. Get your head around that. What am I trying to tell you? Put your faith in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus. We can not only prove that he was a physical man, but the prophecies of God, the in, the inner testimony of the word of God declares that he wasn't just a man. He is the son of man, the word made flesh sent here so that we might all have hope of an eternity. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to build your faith because faith comes by hearing. Amen. Don't ever ask yourself, man, is this Jesus really? Because the answer to that is whatever the end of that question is, the answer, if it's in line with this book is yes. Yes, he's exactly what this book says he is in every form or fashion. You're struggling, you're crushed, you're hurting. The Bible says that he's the answer for that. He is who he says he is. And 353, that is 10 to the 47th power, statistical probability, says that you can trust your life with him. And I have. And you should. Amen? That's so good. God, that's good. I, sometimes I just go, did, did y'all know I'm just person too? Sometimes I read my Bible. Angela will tell you. I read my Bible. I just get excited. Y'all should read your Bible just to get excited. Sometimes y'all should lay it down on the carpet and say, man, did you see this? Did you see what the word of God said about Jesus? And the fact that because Jesus was real, I have the hope of an eternal salvation, not because anything that I did, but because of everything that he did. This is what he's declaring as he comes as the God of prophecy through the gates of Jerusalem saying, I'm here. All right. Let's focus. <laughs> But he's not just the prophetic king. He is the rightful king. You know, he could be a king of something, but not be your king wouldn't make any difference. But Isaiah says he's not just God. He is your God. 
Verse 5a in the text that I read you, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. Man, we need to take a hold of the fact that Jesus is for us. You guys have heard me say this before. We get very, it's very easy. And I'll tell you the truth. It's very easy for me to believe that Jesus loves y'all. Can I tell you it's more difficult for me to believe Jesus loves me? Isn't that crazy? How are you up there preaching every Sunday? Grace of God. You know why it's harder for me to believe Jesus loves me than it is for, him to, for me to believe that he loves you? Because I know me. I know the you that you show me. I know that I still struggle with sin, that I still have things that I need God to dig out of my life, that I have to count on the Spirit to remove from me. And I know that I struggle with that every day. And so every day I start in prayer expecting that my king will do what my king says he will do and that I can walk in freedom. Amen. Take possession of him as your king. My Jesus. I love that. He's my Jesus. But he's not just my Jesus. He's your Jesus. You know, there's, there was a thing going around several years ago where people would write, like, stuff on their mirror so they get up and have this little motivational quote on their mirror when they're getting ready. I think the greatest motivational quote is that Jesus is my king. Jesus died for me. Jesus raised it from the dead for me. Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to me. And because of that, I am an overcomer because of what Christ did for me. Amen. That should get your day started, right? He entered the gates of Jerusalem saying, listen, everything written about me is true. And everything that's written about me is true and is for you because I am for you. I praise God for that. And you should too. Not only is he the rightful king, not only is he the king of prophecy, he is the gentle and peaceful king. 5b says gentle and mounted on a donkey. If you look at that word gentle, it means meek. Doesn't mean cowardly. The church has been messed up, man. I'm going to say something to the men, women, close your ears for a minute or be offended. We've allowed the feminization of the church to happen. You want to know why the church is largely impotent in today's society? Because men have determined that meekness should mean cowardice. That gentleness should mean silence, and that's not the case. Jesus wasn't a coward, nor was he silent. But he has power under control. And so being power under control, he had the ability to kill us, but extended us mercy instead. He had the ability to judge us, but died for us instead. He had the ability to ride into Jerusalem on a war horse, but rode a colt instead. Because he had the ability to do it. He could have stripped himself off the cross. He said so himself. I don't have to be up here. It was by God's plan that Jesus was on the cross. You know why he was on the cross? Because he is gentle and kind. 
because he cares about you, because he loves you, because he wants to extend compassion to you. And in fact, through Christ Jesus has, and the sacrifice that he made, has extended compassion to you. Did you know a coward can't be meek? A coward can't be me. Here's why. In order to be meek, you have to be able to have strength under control. Cowards are cowards because they don't have strength. Cowards are just quiet. Jesus had all the strength in the world but controlled it. It's time that men in the church get back to that place. All right, women, if you didn't catch all that, then you're welcome to start listening again. But the same is true for you. You should be you should be meek also because you carry power in you too. Power of the Holy Spirit is the same spirit I have in me. But we're not called to be cowards. We're called to be meek as Jesus was meek. Matthew Henry, has, who was one of my favorite commentators, wrote this concerning his peaceful and gentle reign. He said, he comes not in wrath to take vengeance, but in mercy to work salvation. He is meek to suffer the greatest injuries and indignities for his people's cause. He is meek not only as a teacher, but as a ruler. He rules by love. His government is mild and gentle, and his laws are not written in the blood of his subjects, but his own. Isn't that beautiful? This is the king we serve. A king who loves us enough to sacrifice himself for us. Meekness. Strength under control. And finally, according to this text, and I don't pretend that this be an exhaustive list of who Jesus is for sure. But according to this text, I'll tell you, he's a king of burden. It's interesting to me that he rode into the city of Jerusalem on a beast of burden as a man with a burden. He took the burden that we had coming. The Bible says that he took the burden of our sin. First Peter 2.24 says this, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Second Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He absorbed and became our sin so that we could be sinless. It says that, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I can't even get my head around that. That the creator of the universe would determine to become less so that I could become greater than I could ever be had he not determined to make himself less that he took the burden from me according to the word of God, that he is the ultimate bearer of not just our sin burden, but all burdens, including trouble. Matthew chapter 11, 28 
through 30 reads like this. Many of you are familiar with this text. I'll get to it in a second. Matthew, okay, I'm looking at 12. Matthew 11. Yeah, I don't know what my deal is. Matthew 11, 28 and 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Can I ask you just a transparent question? Answer it if you want to. Don't answer it if you don't. Are you weary? Have you been weary? Have you been heavy laden? Have you felt like the pressure of the world is on you? That no matter where you turn, there's a struggle? That the world itself is scheming against you? Jesus has an answer for that. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Who needs rest for their soul? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is interesting to me. He says, come to me. Many of us, man, we look for peace and comfort. We're all, man, I'm just striving for peace. I'm striving for long-suffering. I'm striving for love. I'm striving for whatever it is I'm striving for. Stop striving for those things. Those are fruit of striving for Jesus. If you'll strive for Jesus, you'll find love. If you strive for Jesus, you'll find peace. Whatever you strive for Jesus, he's the one we should be pushing towards. Everything else is a fruit of the Spirit. The things that you need happen when we pursue Jesus and take on his yoke instead of trying to carry our own. Because let me tell you, you don't have it in you to be peace, to be at peace. You don't have it in you to be long-suffering. You don't have it in you to be joyous. But Jesus does. And if you allow Jesus to bear the burden of what you're dealing with, then you can be those things as you chase Jesus. People are, man, I try to do this. I discipline myself for this, and I keep failing. Stop disciplining yourself for love and start disciplining yourself to chase Jesus. Love will happen. Abide in the vine, I think is what the word says, and then the fruit will produce itself from the vine. I think we get it mixed up. We want all the stuff, but we want to skip Jesus. He loves us enough to bear that burden for us. And because he's all of those things, because he's the king of prophecy, because he's the rightful king, the king of peace and gentleness, because he's the king of burden, we should give him his proper response, which is my second point. God always, this is who I am. Welcome. But now that you're in my house, there's some house rules. You ever let anybody spend, spend the night at your house or stay at your house for an extended amount of time? Yeah, I tell people, look, we got some rules around here. 
You going to stay here? You going to go to church with us? Not going to run around my house naked? You're, gonna, you're not going to cuss in front of my wife? You're not going to smoke in the house? Whatever. You're welcome in my house. Jesus welcomed us into his house. And because he welcomed us into his house, there's house expectations. There's rules. We think we can get all the grace with none of the expectation. Let me tell you, grace will save you, but your expectation and the fulfillment of his expectation works, that is, proves that you've been saved. I want to say that again. Grace through proclamation of faith in Christ Jesus as Lord, saves you. But I've never met anyone that tasted grace that didn't go to work, that didn't at least strive, no matter how many times we fall short, strive towards what God expects of us. Amen? And here's what he expects of us, what our response should be. Our response should be one of all. In verse 10, he says, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. That word stirred. That doesn't mean they were all, oh, look at that. That's cool. That means they were shook, as the kids say these days. I was shook. Matter of fact, that's the word that's used to declare, to, to also say shook in Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. And the rocks were split. That's the same word used for stirred in that instance. Let me tell you, it was no small thing that Jesus entered into the space. And it should be no small thing when Jesus enters into our space. It should be no small thing when we enter into Jesus' space. We need to recover our awe. We need to recover our amazement. We need to be, and I'm not talking about reverence, although, well, I'm also talking about reverence. I'm talking about fear. We've lost the fear of the Lord. You know, Ananias and Sapphira lost fear of the Lord, and they got struck dead. And I hear people say, well, that was the Old Testament. You need to read that again. That's in the book of Acts. That's the early church. God is still a righteous God, a judgeful God, a, ju a God that is perfect in every way. And when we lose our fear, there are consequences. We should still do like Isaiah. I don't know. I'm preaching now. Y'all get on. Third service may just have to join us. But we should still have a holy fear of a perfectly righteous God, a perfect judge, one who will tell us at the end of our life one of two things, well done, good and faithful servant, or depart, I never knew you. We need to get back our heart of Isaiah, who says, woe unto me, for I have seen God, and I am a man of unclean lips. And then we should fall on our face in reverence. And when I say reverence, let me instigate again, I mean fear. And after we deal with God in our fear, then we should express God in our reverence. That is good. I as you had a conspiracy, just gave me that. I hope somebody wrote that down. Amen. We should be people who are in awe of God. I mean, look around. I don't know about y'all. I should have been dead a long time ago. A long time ago and on multiple occasions. But he's kept me for whatever reason until he decides to take me on. And for that, I'll serve him every day of my life.
Our response should be all, but it should also be action. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed him, verses 6 through 8, and brought a donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road. And others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowd recognized Jesus was someone special and that he was to be revered. And they laid their coats and palm branches on the road. Why? That's the question, right? Why? I take my coat off and I lay it on the ground in front of someone. I am symbolically saying, I submit to you whatever I have, all that I am. Do with me what you will. We've forgotten how to lay our coats at the feet of Jesus. God, if it's your determination to wipe your feet off on me, it's better than I deserve. And they spread branches, palm branches specifically. That's why we call this Palm Sunday. They spread palm branches. Palm branches were, were a, something they used in, in a lot of several different celebrations throughout the Old Testament fest, festivals that expressed joy and triumph. And so they were saying, we're in submission to the triumph that's coming at your hand. Can I tell you, though, they got it wrong. They were expecting a different kind of king. They were expecting a king to overthrow the Roman government. They're saying, we're submitting to you because triumph is coming. In fact, Jesus didn't come to fight a physical war. Jesus came to fight a spiritual one, and he won it. How many of us say, I'll submit to you if you'll bring me triumph? Perhaps if we just submit because he deserves to be submitted to, we'd see more triumph. Amen? That's what God's called us to do, recognize who he is and submit ourselves to him because he will triumph. He has triumphed. But they, like I said, they weren't expecting that kind of triumph. They were expecting a physical triumph. You want to know how people at the beginning of the week went from celebrating Jesus? And I used to ask this question. It used to just bother me. In a, in a week's time, they go from celebrating, being completely stirred, the whole city going crazy about Jesus coming in, to a week later persecuting him. You want to know why? Expectation. They had the wrong expectation of their Savior. I've seen many people fall out of church because they had a wrong expectation, because they didn't have their expectation based in the word of God of who Jesus would be and what he'd do for them. We need to realign or align our expectation of Jesus' triumph with Jesus' word. Amen? Not only is he expect action of us, 
our response should be adoration, worship. We just got done with a series on worship. And we said that worship is what? Does anybody remember after four weeks the definition I gave for worship? Don't feel pressure. All right, let me tell you. It is the reverence to the point of obedience and adoration of God. It says this, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, which is a statement of praise, a statement of worship. Hosanna in the highest. We should be willing to say Hosanna in the highest. We should be willing to praise. We should be able to worship. I'm telling you that worship and praise aren't the same thing. I've told you this before. Worship is the expression of who God is and the thankfulness for who he is. Praise is, I pray, like we praise our kids when they do something, right? We praise God for what he does. We worship God for who he is. And so we should praise and worship God because he is who he says he is, because he has proven over and over and over again that he is faithful. Not only did he create, which is enough for us, but he didn't recreate when we sinned, which he had every right to do. Psalm 118, 25 through 27 says, O Lord, do save. We beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. This is a prayer. This is a prayer of worship. Let me explain this to you. I know we're out of time, but I, I, I ain't quite out of time yet. Many of the Psalms are songs. Well, all the Psalms are songs. That's what Psalms mean. And as songs, there's oftentimes prayers. And if you ever wonder, how should I pray? Open up your Psalms and pray the Psalms. So here's the Psalm. Oh, Lord, do save. We beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And so my prayer may not look like that. It'll be, Lord, you do save. God, I thank you for saving me. I praise you, Heavenly Father, that you did the work so that I wouldn't have to, that you took judgment so I didn't have to take judgment. I request of you, Lord, that you send prosperity, not because I deserve it, but because you are a good and gracious and mighty and powerful, compassionate God. Blessed are you, Lord. Blessed is anyone who comes in your name so that I might know more about you, Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. We declare from Launch Point Church that you are the only God, that you are our God. By the stripes of Jesus Christ, we are healed, that you were crushed so that we might, you might take our diseases and our infirmities. We declare that you are our strong tower. From this house, we will adore the Lord. Amen. And it is well with my soul. Man, that's so good. He expects that of us, and he should get it. Not when it's convenient for us, but as a matter of, as we talked about for the last four weeks, as a matter of our life. And then finally, our response should be one of acclamation. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting. And when he entered Jerusalem, the city was stirred. We've talked about that saying, who is this? 
And the crowd was saying, this is prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. First, I'll tell you, they got it wrong again. He was the prophet from Nazareth. I mean, they got that part right. But he's also the Messiah. But he's also their salvation. He's everything that was prophesied about him. He is the meek, gentle, loving king. But they determined to make him just prophet. But that's okay because if they didn't like what he said, they're in the habit of killing prophets anyway. We ain't in the habit of killing prophets, are we? Sidebar. My point is here, they ask, who is this? The world is dying right now and screaming for us to answer this question. Who is this? Why do you have joy? Why do you have peace? Why are you comforted? Why are you able to walk around confidently like you walk around confidently? And we should be able to say, because of Jesus. The Bible says that we'll be saved by what? The blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. By the blood of the Lamb, I'm saved. You will be saved. But everybody I come into contact with can be saved by the word of my testimony as I declare the gospel message to them. This is God's expectation. This is his house expectation of us, that we declare who he is and declare who he is rightfully, not not minimizing it, not compromising it, not speaking against it, but standing boldly proclaiming, this is the king of kings. None of you got saved, I would dare say, through a Christophany. Did anybody get saved by Jesus showing up in your bedroom and saying, this is me like he did for Paul? Everybody else then had to hear the gospel. Somebody cared enough to answer that question for you. Who is this? Angela and I started going to Cornerstone in 2006. I went there, didn't care. But people gathered around us and loved us long enough for, ask, for us to sit and ask the question, who is this? And in hearing my pastor's testimony, I found out. We've been tasked to acclaim the ministry of reconciliation. And we should. We should enter our city as Jesus entered his city. First, before I even leave my house, before I even enter the gate, I should gaze upon it and weep. Bring it all the way back around to the front. When was the last time you sat in your living room and before you left your house said, God, I weep for the people in this city. I see their rebellion. I see their hurt. I see that they've been disenfranchised. They've been used. They've been abused. God, my heart's broken for them, for the self-righteous that have oppressed them, for the destruction of addiction. God, give me an opportunity to tell them about you. Let them ask me, who is this? And then let me seize that moment. Amen. That's why Jesus came to seize that moment so that we could seize that moment. Amen? My task as we go into the Easter season is that you seize that moment, that you tell people about Jesus. I want to say invite them to church and do. 
but invite them to, to know Jesus first and then invite them to church. Amen? That's my prayer. Let us acknowledge why Jesus came and our responsibility to him.